Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm your host, Coach Elizabeth. When I started running at the age of 29, I had so many questions and what felt like nowhere to turn to for answers. So now I'm here to answer all your questions about running and running adjacent topics to help you become a better, smarter, more knowledgeable runner. Whether you're brand new or you've been doing this for a while, there's always more we can learn about running. And now you can train with Running Explained wherever you go. Check out the new Run Club by Running Explained app. The Run Club by Running Explained gives you the freedom to build your own training schedule using Running Explained training plans, including training for races, building your base, post-race recovery, running for fitness, and more, and you can swap between plans as needed. Then layer on a running-specific strength training program that matches your goals and includes plyo, core, and mobility. Plus, you have instant access to a variety of resources at your fingertips, including training guides, pacing resources, run fueling 101, and more. Join the Run Club Plus for a monthly live group coaching call led by me, Coach Elizabeth, plus in-app chat support and other fun inclusions. Start your three-day free trial now at runningexplained.co slash the run club or by visiting the link in the show notes. And now let's get started. My guest this week is physical therapist, founder of Learn to Run and returning guest, Dr. Matt Minard. Matt's been on the show twice previously as a guest talking about his favorite subject, which is running mechanics, running form, and the way that we run. He was in a guest back in season one talking about the mechanics of running in form broadly. He was a guest last season, season three, talking all about cadence. We talked about cadence for almost an hour and a half. If you have cadence questions, that episode has the answers. And this week, he is back to dive deep into foot strike, a say a hot topic, a common question that I tend to get, that he tends to get about running form, questions about foot strike, heel striking, midfoot striking, forefoot striking. Is there a right way? Is there a wrong way? What do you need to know about foot strike? Well, we're going to talk about it at length in this episode. Now, as with many things that are running form related, it can be hard to describe in a narrative way the movement patterns that we're talking about. And if you have questions about what these things look like in action, I'd encourage you to check out Matt's YouTube channel where he has a ton of videos available that illustrate all of the things that we'll be talking about on this episode. Dr. Matt and welcome back to the show. I'm excited to have you here. What a treat. Third time's a charm, right? Third time, Glad best be time, or is it fourth, fourth time, beast time, whatever, best coast, west coast, who knows, whatever it is. We're going to make it. We are here with you again today to talk about a topic that I know you've been diving deep into recently on your own work on your YouTube channel. Today we're talking about foot strike, but before we get started, please briefly reintroduce yourself to any new listeners who might not know who you are. Yes, I'm uh, Dr. Matt Minard, pronounced my nerd. And pretty much I am a lifelong learner and just super passionate about helping people. And with the pandemic, when the world shut down and more people turned to running, and I was running and working with runners, but like when that was like the only thing going on uh, for my own mental health, for other people to give them an outlet, I started uh, teaching people how to run. And it started with the mechanics, just finding over the last three and a half years, how can I present this information is simple as possible? Can I break it down? Can I make it systematic? How can I try to reach the masses? So I'm a physical therapist by trade, mainly working on people that are injured, but I have a strong passion for trying to reach people to prevent injury so they don't have to come see me as a physical therapist and working on prevention. So uh, all things movement is, uh, especially with running, is my thing. Foot strike, as you said in one of our chats, is an important and misunderstood topic. What do you mean by that? 
So foot strike, it's a, you know, you know, there's certain like hot points where you bring it up and there's so many different cooks in the kitchen, so to speak, and opinions. And if you say one thing, they hear it, they automatically tune you out. We've, we had a good session, uh, last time we were together about cadence. Cadence is one of those and talking about, uh, you know, step rate, uh, but foot strike and particularly heel strike is another one that I feel like hopefully we'll be able to clarify some things where things have been demonized. The heel's been demonized. A lot of people may temporarily recommend switching and they switch things up and it's kind of like sweeping, sweeping something under the rug, but like, like everything reverse engineering and kind of taking movements and thinking of movements in terms of arrows and thinking, okay, from a mechanic standpoint, how can I create those movements? Just finding the things to be a little bit more simple, but foot strike in and of itself, we're kind of describing what differentiates walking versus running. Both are moving forward. But walking, we're still going forward, but there's always one point of contact on the ground at one point, at all, at always at one point. What differentiates running versus walking is there's that flight time where there's both feet off the ground. So both running and walking both have a landing phase, but that what differentiates is that flight phase. And what I'm trying to teach and what I'm trying to show is the flight phase when you leave the ground, moving horizontal not leaving the ground and going up and then down. So that's where a lot of what this is kind of layered of, can I teach people to move forward, move horizontal, leave the ground, but not jump, not go up in the air, leave and go horizontal and down. So foot strike just has to do with that period of after we're in the air and hopefully in the air, you're moving horizontal, not up and forward, which will dictate where you land. But that initial piece of when you go to land to the ground, our muscles are acting what we call eccentrically, absorbing impact, preventing us from crumbling. And for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So when we land, the goal, the ultimate goal is to minimize breaking. Like no matter what we're trying to minimize, it's impossible to take breaking completely out. It's impossible to land directly underneath your center of mass while we're moving forward. So the goal then is minimizing. So when we talk about foot strike as a, a topic among runners there, let's just start at the very basics because I'm sure a lot of people listening to this episode have probably heard something to the effect of, Oh, you're a heel striker. Oh, you're a midfoot striker or you're a forefoot striker. Um, and obviously it's an oversimplification, but breaking those definitions down, you know, what does a runner need to understand about foot strike and where one lands on one's foot? So definitely I want to break that down. And what I found from a teaching standpoint too, like big, big, big picture, zooming out. We can only focus on one thing at a time as when we're running or in most things in life. By even thinking about what part of your foot you're landing on, we're actually going to be doing more jumping. We're going to be slowing down more. Instead of thinking about the push with a tush where I talk about, think about the foot that's on the ground, not the foot that's in the air and landing. By having the right lean, which we'll talk about, by pushing the ground backwards to move forward horizontal, the landing will just take care of itself. So try not even to really think about it. If you've got the leaning right, if you've got the propulsion piece right, you don't need to think about the landing. But historically, when we've done like video analysis, if we look from the side view in slow motion, we'll look at what's called initial contact. And so as physical therapists, we'll see slow motion, we'll go, and running coaches as well, we'll go frame by frame and we'll find the exact moment that you first make contact with the ground. 
and there's good and bad for this. The good is that the reliability, where if I look at a runner and I find that initial contact and then I, you know, go out for lunch, come back and find it again, there's high amounts of reliability where it's pretty accurate, where I can find the first point the foot hits the ground. And they even show the reliability between me and another clinician. If we both say, which frame is it where we're finding this initial contact we land, it's pretty reliable. But what I'm kind of uh, been working on and the way I was trained and kind of unlearning is we can't tell there's so much that we're missing. If that's where we're stopping, if we're making our judgment off of when you first make contact with the ground, the first point of contact with the foot to the ground, if we're making judgments of, are we slowing? Are we breaking when the body weight hasn't been transferred to the ground yet? But typically what we'll do is that initial contact will measure the angle of dorsiflexion. Kind of think about the ankle dorsiflexion is like drawbridge, think D, drawbridge, lifting the ankle up. We'll measure the angle between the shin and the bottom of the foot. And typically five degrees to 10 degrees or higher is considered heel striking. And between five degrees and zero is considered more midfoot. And if it's a negative angle, where if we look from the side and the ball of the foot or the front of the foot is lower than the heel, that's more of a four foot strike or less than zero. So that's kind of the thing is seeing when the contact is, that's what we was talk about is, is heel strike. And pretty much it's like, where are you going to be loading when you're in the air, when you first land, what part of your foot is going to be taking the stress? And historically what's been argued is the heel, the heel bone, it's just a bone. There's just, there's some padding, but when we get more towards the middle part of our foot, the arch or the forefoot, the ball of the foot, that's where our calf muscle can can offer, can work to help to absorb. But here's the hopefully the big picture aha. We're trying to take the jump out. If I do want to jump, if I'm standing here and I want to lower my body and jump high vertically in the air and then come back down, I absolutely want to land on the ball of my foot or the midfoot, not on my heel. But with running, we don't have to jump. We can glide. I can run in a room that has my ceiling height of my height and not go up and hit my head. So if I'm doing it right, if I'm truly gliding and leaving the ground and moving horizontal, the only option is the, is the heel. Kind of like with walking. I talk about walking and running. They're both in the same direction. The only difference is how fast do you get there? And with walking, try to walk and land on something other than your heel. It's awkward, right? We, we're marching, we're picking our feet up, we're leaning so close that we're shortening up. So long story short, foot strike is a very controversial topic, which I think it shouldn't be, but it's been, it's been demonized. It's long been said that heel striking isn't the way that you should do it. If you're a heel striker, you shouldn't even be a runner. Why are you even doing it? But my whole thing is uh, I want you to, no matter your, what your goal is, or your choice, you can land on whatever part of your foot, I don't care. But if you're getting injured, it's this constant like pattern over time. I just want to give you the information to kind of differentiate what the different parts of the foot, if you're going to choose to land on different parts of the foot, what is, what are the implications of that? That's a really fascinating way to look at it because when you present it in the way of, yeah, if you're jumping straight up and down, you would land on the ball of your foot, but that's as runners, we are trying to minimize, like you said, that up and down, that vertical movement, because that's wasted energy. Any All the energy I'm spending going up is energy I'm not spending going forward. 
Exactly. That makes sense. And I also know there is a lot of research out there that looks at injury rates and uh, foot strike and is demonstrating that there is no demonstrable correlation between higher injury rates and runners who heel strike. So this, and I think that this gets a little bit messy then because people are t- told about, you know, oh, but overstriding and all these things. So talk to us about how it is that somebody could have a heel strike in two different situations. And one is like, Hey, you're doing great. The other one is actually there's something going wrong here. Yeah. Great question. So it really boils down to with the heel, there's kind of three options of landing on the heel and what it's more about is where's my center of mass? Am I leaning? Am I not leaning? Am I leaning forward, hinging of the hips? It's when my foot is in the ground in front of me, where is my body weight? Where is my center of mass? If we think back to science, center of mass, if I take you know, a can and turn it sideways, where could I put my finger that would balance where it's like the average of the accumulation of most of the weight? For us, for humans, it's just in front of our sacrum. Kind of think belly button. So it depends on where that is when we land. I, you could find somebody that says don't land on their heel But if you trace back, it's again, it's not about the heel. What's most important is where the center of mass is. If you reverse engineer or if you find somebody in that initial uh, heel strike position, where's their torso? And the way to visualize this is if I'm looking at them from the side and they've got their torso, if I think of that like an hour hand of a clock, imagine they're running from left to right. Just we read left to right, just be consistent. If somebody has a 12 o'clock posture, meaning their torso is straight up and down, straight vertical. What they're not doing is leaning. Their weight's back. So therefore, if my weight's back, my center of mass is back, and I'm landing and loading in front of my body, yes, landing on your heel there will slow you down. It will break you. On the other end of the spectrum, someone that's not leaning at all, someone that is leaning, but they're not leaning from the right joint part of the body, if someone's leaning at the hips, If I were to try to lean right now, lean forward, what my body would naturally do as my shoulders go forward, my hips start to go backwards. And again, we're talking a lot of stuff that's hard to visualize on my YouTube. I've got an hour and a 30 minute where I show you like a platform from a down, a top down view of what does the base of support look like? Where is this center of mass, a little circle when I shift and lean my weight forward, what should happen? What? So again, if you're looking, needing a visual person like me, then check out my YouTube. Um, but we talked about the 12 o'clock posture. If someone's landing on the heel, breaking, slowing down. Why? Their center of mass is back. If someone's leaning, but they're hinging at the hips, the hippie, they're leaning forward, their shoulders are going forward, but their hips are staying back because subconsciously the body doesn't want to fall. It's a learned skill to get used to where's my center mass right now. It's between my arches. As I lean forward, everything stays put. I'm transferring my weight, my pressure from my arch to more of the ball of my foot naturally what's going to want to happen, the body's going to pull the hips back so you don't fall. So leaning forward is a learned skill. So if you see somebody that's a one o'clock posture from that side view that's landing on the heel, they're also going to be breaking. 12 o'clock, one o'clock, both breaking, both landing on the heel, both just have to do with where's the center of mass, where's the, where's their, their average of their body weight. Ideally, it's the 1230 posture. And the only way to get to 1230 posture, if we look at that torso, is the ankle hinging at the ankle. If I'm just standing up tall, let's say I'm 12 o'clock right now, as I lean my entire body forward, that lean 
having my pressure of my weight go forward towards the balls of my feet. So it feels like you're falling. That's where one of the three skills of teaching people to run is that, that leaning, keeping the weight forward. And what that does, the whole, sorry, I'm, I'm trying to not go all over the place. The ultimate goal is your center of mass and your base support where you land. We want those two as close as possible together, as close as possible. The further away they are, the more breaking. By leaning my body weight forward, it shifts my weight forward. So naturally I'm going to be approximating. So no matter what, I'm kind of setting up the landing in a better location. So by having that lean, the hankle, the 1230 posture, like being on a Segway, what's naturally is going to occur is this area of where you can land that's closer to your center of mass becomes closer to you. And if we think about what part of the foot is closest to your body, the heel. So the heel is naturally closest. So ideally, when we've got that lean right, we've got to go in the heat. That's where the heel landing on the heel is optimal. We're going to be minimizing breaking as long as we have the lean going from the ankles, hinging at the ankles. Because as we're going through, and I'm trying to helpfully, again, yes, everybody who's like, okay, hold on. Can somebody show me this? Go watch his YouTube. Go watch Matt's YouTube. Learn to run. Um this makes sense because I think when a lot of people hear foot strike, there's kind of the implicit assumption that it's like strike and stop. And I, I want to remind everybody that when you are striking your foot on the ground as a runner, you are still in, in constant motion that your body is still moving over your foot. So as I'm, as I'm conceptualizing this, it would make sense to me that yes, your heel may strike the ground first, but as I've seen in runners from elite to recreational, um, the body still moves over so that by the time the foot actually is planted on the ground, your body is moving over it. And I think that's really what the key is because it's not just about, like you said, that first point of contact, it's about where that foot actually loads. Yeah. It's like, where's my weight? When I load my weight to the ground, where is my center of mass? And a way that you can kind of see is two positions in the gait cycle. One is mid stance. It's really easy to find. If you're looking from the side view, slow motion, you go frame by frame and you find the point where the runner's head is at its lowest point. Arms are, are level and equal and parallel and thighs. And so it's like, you can conceptualize, okay, think that they weren't running. If this was just a static picture, if I were to bring this to life, what would they do? If their weight is appropriate, if they're leaning their weight forward, if I were to bring that to life, they would fall forward. But with people that don't have their weight forward, that learn skill of keeping their center mass forward, if I were to bring that image to life, they would fall back. And so usually that's where that 12 o'clock posture where someone's not leaning at all, where if we were to like find that point where their head's at the lowest point, arms, thighs are level and equal, where's their pressure of their in their foot? most people, their pressure will be towards their heel. It will be back. And that's where we can kind of find as long as they have their weight, their body weight shifted forward. So their pressure at that point is more towards the, the ball of the foot. Then it's like this constant forward motion or minimizing the braking. So I think where we get into trouble is taking that snapshot of how many frames and how quick running is. And you're right, it's constant forward. If we're just making a judgment based off of when the foot first makes contact versus what I call IFF, initial foot flat, IFF. And you go frame by frame and you find the point where the bottom of the foot 
is flush and you can kind of see it. You can see where the body weight then is transferred to the ground. Now, now I want to see what's the relationship. Ideally, that tibia, that lower bone should be parallel with my torso, that hour hand. So if we're at that 1230 posture. So what that's telling me is that it's, I'm breaking the least amount. We have to, I talk about the ground is like paying taxes. You have to pay taxes. We can't get out of it. Every action equal and opposite. The, um, the ground is paying taxes before that step where I'm talking about before, which I think this is hopefully will clear it up even more. 99% of people without learning the skill will jump. They'll bound. 99%. It is such a learned skill to be able, and it's not hard. That's what I've been working at, but most people will bound. And what does that mean? They're jumping. What does that mean? They're pushing down through the ground instead of just pushing purely back to the ground. They're blending, jumping, and running. They're pushing the ground down and back. Well, how do we push down? With our ball of our foot. So people are pushing down using their calves. So then they're going up and forward. So then when they land, they're more going to land towards that midfoot or that forefoot if they're jumping. So my thing is we just, we don't have to have to jump. So that's where it's, it's layered, it's complex, but trying to make it as simple as possible where it's more about where your weight is, is the number one thing when it comes to the heel, but you can't, you can't demonize the heel unless you look at where the center of mass is, where they're leaning. And then if they're landing forefoot or midfoot, they're most likely they're, they're jumping, they're leaving the ground and going up, which I talk about the other part of the payment, the running economy. We talked about the ground is paying taxes, but also I'm uh, the marathon mortgage. Every time I take a step forward, I'm making a payment. The goal is moving forward. Like I'm paying on a house, the mortgage, the principal, ideally the, the energy that I'm exerting, that I'm spending, if it's not going towards the goal of moving forward, it's going towards the interest. So with that piece of the propulsion piece leaving the ground, the forward is the principle. The leaving the ground and continuing to go up is the vertical. That's paying the bank. That's paying on the interest. So kind of the two parts where we're separating out the propulsion piece, the spending, how much is going towards the principle versus the interest. And then when we get taxed, that's the breaking. The ground, Uncle Sam, it, we have to pay taxes. Can we minimize the least amount? How does this change for something like a sprinter, like a hundred meter sprinter? Because you look at those athletes run and they're, they're pretty much up and on the balls of their foot. I mean, it's an incredibly short race. I know in, in our conversation about cadence, we talked about running speed affecting your cadence. Does running speed affect the preferential foot strike in this situation? Great question. It doesn't have to. I show videos of me walking three miles per hour, going all the way up to 12 miles per hour. I'm still landing on my heel the whole time. But for a sprint, for most people for a sprint, it's such a short amount of distance and short amount of time. We're not trying to optimize efficiency. We're trying to optimize for power. How much power can you get? So even if someone is bounding, if they are leaving the ground and they're moving vertical and forward and they're jumping, for most of the professionals that this is what they've been doing for decades and years, they've been running for transportation. Their body is well adjusted. They can handle that extra stress. It's not wrong. It's just higher interest rates. But for most of us recreational runners, for most people that don't have the time to slowly build and build and build that amount of jumping, that vertical, which they can professionals can get away with. They're not going to be injured from that. 
And again, they're just using more work than they need to. And who's to know if they weren't to bound and go up, who knows? Maybe they would be faster. We, we don't we don't know. But for most of us, we don't have to land on that ball of the foot. But with the sprinting, they're just seeing how what's the most amount of muscle production, the most production I can create sprinting. With long distance running, it's like, how can I conserve? How can I still maximize speed and minimize exhaustion so I can have it for the longer period? Sprinters, they don't think they don't care about that. Um, and the, the other thing is, if someone's landing on their forefoot with sprinting, if you look slow motion, most of them are kind of staying on their forefoot the whole time because it's really inefficient to land on the forefoot and then allow the heel to come all the way down. It'd kind of be like a skateboarder or a snowboarder landing with the front part of their, their board and then the back. It's landing in front of their center mass and breaking. So most of them will choose to have such a small amount of time on the ground that they stay on the ball of their foot the whole time. But more common, you'll see kind of the midfoot as well where they are. They're jumping and they don't care. They're just trying to get as much force as possible, as much distance between each step. I like to bring that up because I think sometimes when we talk about running form and running mechanics, using sprinters specifically as an example, when we're really trying to apply that to distance running, people don't really understand that you can't. The mechanics of sprinting is it's it's different, right? You wouldn't say, you know, there if anybody who's actually trained as a sprinter, it's a very different way of training than for any, like even a 5k. Um, Cause yeah, the good point about you're not trying to conserve energy and go as fast as you can for a long time. You're trying to go as fast as you possibly can for a very, very, very short period of time. Yeah. They don't care about energy or saving. They, they don't, they don't want to keep a bunch in the tank. They're just trying to get as much force through the ground as, uh, as possible. So, so yeah, I think the other part that's confusing about it is my sprinting speed is might be different than somebody else's, you know? And, and sometimes those professionals, their base pace, their easy runs are some people's sprints, you know? Like, so I, the way I like thinking about it is exertion of like what percent exertion for me, a full on sprint is 100% exertion and kind of like dialing it back. But yeah, I think that's where we get into trouble when we start just comparing, uh, the professionals at different speeds at different points of their life, someone that's been running for 20, 30 years, like weekly versus someone that just picked it up a couple months ago because they want to lose weight. They want to help mental health. They've heard it's good and they get into it. But that's, those are really the people that need it the most. The professionals, I don't know why we keep comparing. They don't really need help. They don't care. They've got coaches. They're fine. They've been doing it for so long. Their body is adapted to it. It's, it's the everybody, the other 99% of the people that are trying to run for their mental health, for their physical health. Those are the people that really do need the help. And those are the ones who are really trying to, to teach, not the, not the elites. So I want to ask you about the uh, opinion of some who believe that barefoot running is the gold standard, that we should all be running barefoot or as close to it as possible. And their argument goes, if you are running barefoot, you would never heel strike. Therefore, we shouldn't heel strike even in shoes. What is your response to an uh, assertion like that? Yeah, I mean, that's another good, a good question. The ground in the foot is feedback. If we, if I have my hand and I'm trying to feel, you know, a coin, I could know what kind of coin, what is it? If I have a glove on, I'm not going to get that feedback. I don't really know what I'm feeling. So yes, having something over your foot can help to put some distance between the ground and you. But the thing is, 
what we're really talking about is the feedback. If you watch somebody run barefoot, they will, they'll get that immediate feedback. If they land on their heel, it will hurt them, but where's their weight? They're not going to be, what you'll see is someone that is, is not leaning or they're leaning forward and appropriately, they won't land on their heel because it hurts like crazy, but that's back to the whole, it's not about the heel. It's about the lean. So if someone has the appropriate lean, you can land on your heel. And I have a video of me running barefoot at 12 miles per hour with shoes and without and overlapping them. And it's the same and it doesn't hurt. But I think for most people, because of most people are going to be breaking and slowing down, which means they're not leaning appropriately. Most people are going to be bounding or going up in the air. So the barefoot or, or, or no shoes gives you feedback. And we normally have no feedback at all. We're just going. Another form of feedback is auditory feedback, where I use a tennis ball necklace, where I take a tennis ball filled with pennies. You wear it around your neck like a necklace. And the sound of that is a form of feedback of what am I doing tactile feedback. If the ball is hitting them, that tells me they're going up and down. And so what it is, is just barefoot is a form of feedback. So I like using it as a training tool and showing, Hey, notice how you run. How do you run differently? Cause ideally we should run the same, no matter what type of shoe that we have on the shoe is in my opinion, as a physical therapist is protection at the ultimate. I care more about your safety and you not getting injured versus PRs and your times. Those will come, but if you're injured, everything is gone. So to me, a shoe is protection. It's cushion. You can replace your shoes a lot easier and cheaper than your knees and your cartilage. I want that shoe. I want that cushion on the bottom of the foot to take stress, to take force before it even gets to my body and I can get a new pair. So if I'm not wearing shoes, yes, there'll be some of the muscles of your feet will get stronger. Yes, your body will slowly adapt, but where the problem comes in with almost everything is just we get too aggressive too much too soon. The body doesn't like two things. Most of the people that come to the clinic to see me that are injured, it's one of two things. It's either new, they've done something new, something, it could be an activity, it could be a new chair, it could be a new whatever, or more, new or more. Same thing they've been doing, but they're just doing a lot more of it. The body needs time to adapt to that. So going from shoes and a cushion and a heel to going to barefoot and nothing and no padding and no protection, it's such a big change that most people end up getting injured. But for those that don't, they'll swear by it because it is, it can be a great learning tool, but that's the key to me. It's a, it's a tool. It's a learning tool to be barefoot or have a minimalist shoe. So your body is doing more of the work, more of the sensing, and the shoe is doing less when it comes to minimalist. But ideally we can change our mechanics in such a way that the main role of the shoe is just protection, cushion from the elements of the outdoors. Now, when is it appropriate for somebody to think about change or is it ever appropriate for somebody to think about changing their foot strike? And actually, I guess the flip side of this coin would be, what are the concerns if somebody does change their foot strike and they shouldn't? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I, I think the people that get the most fired up about heel strike is the ones that they started running. They were getting injured time and time again. They kept getting shin splints. They kept getting knee pain. And then maybe they read or they went to some piece or they went somewhere and they said, well, yeah, you're landing on your heel, not addressing the leaning, which is the most important. They said, you're landing on your heel. If you land on the ball of your foot, then your calf can take that stress first. When you hit the ground, that, that force coming up, your, your calf can pay more of the taxes than your knee. So a lot of people then will go, oh, 
okay. So then what they do is they shift from a heel to a forefoot and then they're robbing Peter to pay Paul. The knee will take less stress. It absolutely will. And yeah, their calf hurts, their Achilles hurts, but no, that doesn't matter. That's not important. And then over time, just like everything, they adapt and they feel better. And so then they demonize, oh, it was the heel. I used to be a heel striker. I'm not anymore. I don't heel strike. That was the root of all my problems. It really wasn't. You can adapt to anything. You can adapt to a forefoot strike, midfoot heel strike, as long as it's enough. If you were deathly allergic to peanuts, we could give you just a teeny, tiny, teeny little bit where your body would not have too much and have an overreaction. And over time, we give you just a little bit more, a little bit more. I used to be allergic to dogs 10 years ago. By having a dog, I'm not allergic anymore. Force is that peanut, is that allergen. We can adapt to force. But a lot of people, they went from heel to forefoot and then they got better but they associate them and then everything they hear healed, they think bad, 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 that was me. But that's the problem is then it's like a temporary solution. It's not really actually fixing anything. If you're teaching someone to land on the ball of their foot, they have to jump. They have to bound. You can't land on the ball of your foot and glide. You can't leave the ground, move horizontal and land on the ball of your foot. It takes extra work. You have to actively try and it stops you. It slows you down. That's why we don't consciously do it automatically. So uh, the, there's a lot of people out there that had injuries of their knees and shins, went to forefoot striking and they, um, again, they got better. They demonize and they'll never go back. Most people don't care. Like the heel striking, they might've been heel striking and then somebody else, whether it's an influencer or that person, we all have those friends. It helps one person and they mean well, they want to help other people, but then they tell everybody. And the thing about the body and the world, especially in physical therapists, one exercise could help and heal somebody and it could make things worse for somebody else. Same movement. So you can't uh, do that to the masses of, oh yeah, land on the ball of your foot. So I've had people that think heel striking is bad. Therefore, they've tried to make an effort to land more midfoot. They don't, there's a very few people that land forefoot because it is so challenging for long distance running. It burns out your calves and your Achilles. So really the biggest argument is midfoot to heel. And the midfoot, again, they're either, either jumping, going vertical and up, or if they're trying to bring their foot back towards them, Instead of just leaning their body weight forward, we talked earlier, it's all about approximating my body and the leg. They're going to try to bring the leg back instead of bringing the body forward. And to bring the leg back, we're trying to move forward. We're going to sacrifice stride and distance. And I showed that one inch difference over a half marathon can be something like a 0.35 miles of a deficit. If you're shortening up your stride that much, you're going to have to take more steps to get there. It's going to take you longer to get there. So that's where the whole shortening the stride, it, yes, it will approximate, but at the event of having to take so many more steps. So that's why the leaning, leaning the body forward, hinging at the ankles, it still does that goal of approximating the body and the foot, but bringing the body forward versus bringing the leg back. So I think that's where a lot of the people get fired up is the midfoot people. And whether they say they're trying to pull it back, even though they're not really trying to land their midfoot, again, it's all about the it's all about the posture and where they're leaning. Someone's pushing that shopping cart. They keep banging their shins. They're upright. But that person that just leans their whole body forward some, shifts their whole body forward, the cart's forward, then I can land my foot's, the goal is landing underneath you. You can bring your feet under you by bringing your, your, the top of your body forward. It's kind of setting you up for success. It's more of a top-down approach versus a bottom-up. So again, center mass, it's the, 
the lean. So long way to answer that that's forefoot versus midfoot heel, where has it been demonized? And then there's a big group of people that just don't care. They, they, they do their heel and they either don't listen or they like the validation. They're like, I don't have any problems. I'm fine. So that's where I, if someone's a heel striker, great. Let's figure out the leaning and the, and the gliding. If someone's a midfoot, then I'd say, yes, you could learn to be more efficient by taking some of the jump out. Um, and then the forefoot again, just burning through. Usually you don't have to convince them if they've been in the clinic for tightness of their calves or their, uh, or their Achilles. So I don't think anyone should change away from a heel strike. I think heel strike, just like with walking is the gold standard. What they do need to learn is where is their body weight while they're moving forward. Just like you said, with different exercises being harmful for one and very helpful for other cueing for running form, I know can be somewhat controversial um, in that everybody can interpret it, a cue in a different way. Are there any cues that you see people talk about that make you think, oh, no, 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 no. That's going to have the opposite effect of what yeah. we're trying to accomplish. Yeah. Another good question. And, and the thing is, we're all different types of learners. And for most people, and doing this a long time, and I coached at Orange Theory, seeing people on a treadmill, giving verbal cues on a microphone, seeing how do things change. All it is, it's a, it's a verbal cue. It's me telling you, imagine like this, I'm trying to apply the concept I'm trying to teach them. I'm trying to find something else they already know and understand in their mind and their body, up, attach it to that and change the way they move. And running is happening so fast. The amount of people that actually it's just one cue away, it's very, very rare. If, if it is, they've been working at it for a while. It's just that icing on the cake. But that's why I usually work on running standing first, stationary. Let's use the mirror next to us. Let's look to get that feedback. You don't need it forever if we learn it now. Now let's learn it with walking and then with running. So just a cue alone for most people. Again, it should be the icing on the cake. It shouldn't be the only way that people are trying to improve their gait. But the biggest one that is problematic for the cues for the landing is the uh, is the old the pose stuff. And I've done you know videos trying to debunk. It's don't pick your feet up, not just gravity. But if people are saying pick your feet up or pull your feet up, those people are going to land more midfoot because they're lifting they're pulling, they're pulling up back to the paddle analogy in the water, how I move my whole body forward, how I knew move that canoe forward is the paddle, which is like the leg. I put it in the water, putting the foot on the ground, push the water back, move forward. I don't need to pick the paddle all the way up on the water and I don't need to minimize the pushing back. That's where we get most of our power. So if you're telling someone to pick their feet up or imagine like you're landing on hot coals, that's where it gets into trouble, where we do tend to shorten up our step rate so much. We tend to be a lot less um, efficient with it. They take so many steps. So the pulling the feet up, the trying to kick your butt, those are probably the most common that I hear that will be... Um, more problematic. I've heard the whole try to land midfoot, even though you don't. And that's actually not bad because it just shows this whole, yeah, we don't want your leg to keep going out forward and kicking. If you've got the lean right, you can't do that. But just that whole try to land midfoot, that's not a bad one, um, but you're not actually landing midfoot. But yeah, pulling the feet up or picking up are the first ones that come to mind is the most problematic. You did mention in looking at um you know, dorsiflexion angles where you could technically, yes, this is technically what this strike means. And here's the angle for this. Is there a similar 
range of understanding for vertical oscillation, either as a percentage or as an actual, you know, centimeters, because I know this is a running dynamic that a lot of people have access to if they have, you know, a Garmin heart rate monitor or something. Um, and again, we don't want people to focus on everything because not everything is important, but is there something if somebody look at their running dynamics and go, oh, gee. I feel like I'm good doing a lot of up and down. Yeah. And that's one that almost everybody could work at. And I think that's where in the research, it's so ambiguous. They say a range, but it's a really big range. But again, I'm grateful because of the pandemic, because I was forced to obsess and obsess and obsess. It's not just the amount, but where is it occurring? And that's that whole, if I literally created a ceiling, I'm six feet tall. If I'm standing in a room that's six feet height, because I soften my knees, because I lean forward, because I leave the ground, move horizontal, I'm not going to hit my head. And I've done that with teaching people of having cardboard at their height while standing and teaching them not to, not to hit their head. But it's, it's not only how much vertical, but where is it occurring? Ideally, it's all occurring below your standing height. And I'm hopeful that someday that will be in the research. Finally, at where I went to PT school, the University of Dayton, they we I finally went there. We met. They're starting the research on the tennis ball necklace. And so I'm hopefully through that whole trial and that process, just that whole understanding of, oh, yeah, I never really thought about where that's occurring. I never really thought about the jumping of when leaving the ground because running happens so fast. We try to like look at it all in action, but breaking it down. And again, because of obsessing over it, um, that's why I've really kind of found the way that we don't have to, we don't have to jump. We can move more um, horizontal, but as far as what people can do, there's technology, there's visual, there's auditory. Let's start with the, the technology usually you have to have a pod on your foot to be able to sense that vertical oscillation. Usually just the watch alone isn't enough. Usually people have that extra pod and that is where it's kind of like I talk about lower interest rates, paying on the principal. If someone has a higher percent, Garmin actually has this function where it will take your stride length and divide it by something I think maybe you're I don't know how they calculate, but it's a great measurement for lower the better, lower the better. It's a percentage. And so it's like the lower, the better, just like with a mortgage, there's no way to get it down to zero, but can we minimize it as much as possible? Um, so the, the watches or the, the foot pods that have vertical oscillation, as far as the numbers, that's where in the research, it used to say between three to five centimeters. Some even said five to seven. I think that's too much, honestly. And that's where I think that I, if you look at my head, no matter what height I'm at, the amount of it's going up and down, if I had a guess, it's maybe two centimeters. It's less, it's an inch at the very, 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 very most. And if, so I want to look back. I'm, I'm curious now. Yeah. So let's give you some real world examples. I'm pulling up some of my, my old Garmin data here. Uh, and let's see if we can't get uh, can't get your opinion on on some <laughs> on some of my metrics here. Um, all right, because this is you know, and I've done I've done episodes on metrics and like how much should you care about certain things, and I don't want people obsessing over every single possible metric that could possibly be recorded. Um, but some some of this stuff does tell a story, it does tell a pattern. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I've got a. Uh, what was this? What was this? Why am I having trouble finding good runs? Um, all right, here we go. Gee, I spent a lot of time on the treadmill during this period of time. All right, let's uh, let's look at a speed workout here because I think that'll give us a good example of of differences between different speeds. Um, so 
I had, this was a four by 1200s at 5k pace workout that I did on a track. And my average vertical oscillation for the entire workout was 9.5 centimeters and an average vertical ratio of 8.6%. Yeah. So usually with speed work, it's people do a better job of bounding less. They do, like if you look at someone on a treadmill going 15 miles an hour, they don't have time to go up and down. They're just trying to keep up. Their head stays relatively level. Where it's so challenging is the base work, kind of building that base, going a slower speed. So if it's that high during the speed work, it it probably is uh, even higher for like the slower paces. Um, but again, it's not that you're wrong or it's just, it's a learned skill. There's like anything driving, you're not born and know how to drive. You got to learn. Same with this. It, unless you take the time to really do it, you, you're, everyone's going to have some vertical. And that's where I talk about reallocating the resources. Can you, the same amount of money or same energy you're using to expend to go up in vertical, if we can transfer that into moving you forward, faster you're going to be faster or for some they just want to get injured less they can do less work at the same pace because they're not they don't need to spend as much they don't need to go up so i'm with you of all the metrics there's some that are more created are more powerful than others where most of our injuries come from where most of our problems in life is uh, is strength of our body and the ability to get up and down from a chair as we get older people want one level story houses because they don't like going up steps to go vertically, to raise your body higher, it's a tremendous amount of work for you to lift your body vertical above your height versus walking or, or moving forward. Not as much. Momentum can help. But if you're just trying to go up, I still get winded going upstairs. Even when I'm in really good shape, it pisses me off because I'm tired after going up a couple of flights. But it's a lot of work to raise your body up. So with this, that vertical, if we can get that as low as possible, where hopefully this is the other aha, uh -huh. the vertical that we're seeing, the up and down, what it really is, is more of a down, it's up, down versus down, up, meaning it's when you land that cushioning, as soon as you you make that initial contact we talked about before, and then you go frame by frame to that initial foot flat where the foot's flat. Ideally there, if we look at the top of the head, when we first land and we look at the top of the head, when my foot's flat, me transferring my weight to the ground, that, that downwards, that vertical change, that's what we're trying to get. That's the cushioning. And that's where a lot of other people talk about stiffness angle and all that. We're trying to just have, that's where the vertical is coming from, is the cushioning, is the landing. Just like if I were to jump and land, as soon as I land, if I have this stiff landing, that's where we get hurt. So much more stress. The bones are going to be taken at versus as soon as I land, the muscles are eccentrically absorbing. They cushion the muscles do it more than the bone. So again, it's, it's really hyper-focusing. Where is that vertical coming from? Ideally, if you're five, seven, it's happening all below five foot seven from the earth and, and below nothing is happening up higher. Interesting. Interesting way to think about it. Um, yeah, cause I, if I'm looking at, uh, the breakdown of the vertical ratio or the vertical oscillation of this, like on my, on the intervals and the speed work, it's very low, but then on my recovery, right. When I'm fatigued yeah. and I'm kind of trying to go really slowly and yeah, probably sandbagging a little bit cause I want to catch my breath, 
vertical goes way and that's up. what running slower is a skill i talk, i call it base gliding just like I, i'm like people want a thing to call it by and gliding is what i like what's the gold standard gliding gliding is a combination of two things it's leaving the ground moving horizontal and it's also leaning minimizing braking so base gliding is like those slower speeds where it requires so much more patience it requires you landing allowing your body to continue to move forward over your planted foot and then pushing back we tend to just constantly be pushing so it requires patience and we know most people aren't good with patience so that's why it's such a skill it's so challenging but so beneficial if you can rack up your body's mileage in that slower speed to get your body just used to your body your tendons your ligaments your bones just used to the force just like the bees getting used to whatever allergy you're not too much too soon to get injured base gliding is uh is a way that you can work on the technique and then what's cool is then when it comes to running faster it's just like on a bike. If I want to go faster on a bike, I just pedal harder and at a faster rate. Same with running. I should just hit the ground harder, more force, push the ground back a little bit further and at a faster rate. I don't need to change the mechanics up. It's just styling back. Same with the bike. Teaching a kid how to bike. They go too slow. They're going side to side. You don't cue them. Hey, lean this way. No, lean right. Lean this. By just teaching them how to, you know, how to pedal that kind of momentum will help and take some of that out of it. But slower speeds because of that, because of the momentum helping, um, because of the requirement of the patience, it's a lot more challenging. But a lot of times it's so, so, so worth mastering that that skill. So this makes sense then because, I mean, I, you know, obviously one of the things that I try to do in life is educate runners on how important it is to really slow down and run easy on your easy days and you really can't run too slowly as long as you're in the right intensity zone. And yes, it's much slower than you've probably been running and that's completely normal. But one of the pieces of feedback I hear from a lot of runners in the situation is, oh, but when I actually run that slowly, when I'm in the right conversational zone, if I'm using heart rate, my heart rate's in the right zone, it feels really awkward and choppy and inefficient. And it just, I don't like it. It feels weird. Would that be a signal to you then, if you're thinking, hey, well, it probably means their mechanics are changing as they're running that slowly. Like you said, they're, they haven't learned the skill because I think a lot of people misunderstand that slow running is yeah, a skill. And that's where, yes, I think it's just, they need to just work on, it's a skill to be able to use less effort, less work to accomplish the task. Someone squatting, they tend to use more muscles than they need. And then over time they learn to, I don't need to use this muscle. It's not helping with the goal of moving my body down and up. Same with running. And what I like to do is have like treadmill belt and like five miles per hour or 4.5 miles per hour and say, okay, I want you to try to uh, keep up with the belt, exert just enough energy to keep up with the belt, no more, no less, and watch them kind of try to figure it out or run softer, run quieter, which is again, trying to take the vertical out, trying to minimize the force that we need for the slower speeds or the tennis ball necklace to get that feedback or a glass of water and say, Hey, try to minimize the movement of that water when you run. But at those slower speeds, if they feel so awkward because they're not used to, they've got walking mode, they've got running mode, learning that kind of jogging between where we talk about difference of walking and running is that flight time. I have speeds where it's such a minimal flight time. Like it's not much, because I'm being more efficient because I'm not wasting time going up. So um, yes, learning those paces and those speeds of how to try to just exert just enough. Um, and you'll know you're doing it when you see, I had somebody the other day message me, are you really running at, what was it? Eight miles per hour or 7.30 pace? Because it didn't look like I was doing a whole lot of work because 
That's what I'm trying to do. I, my whole goal is running is hard. Let's not make it harder. I want to do less work and get more bang for my buck. Just like everybody with everything, spend less and get more out of it. So I've been working to make it easier and to not make it as hard. So again, we're just trying to match your running economy, the energy you're exerting. Let's go towards the principle moving forward, not the interest. And then let's minimize the taxes. You have to get taxed. You're going to have to break with the ground because of physics. Can we minimize that as much as possible? But learning the speed pretty much between five, four and a half to 5.5 miles per hour. Those tend to be the most awkward for people, but if you could learn those and then doing long runs or intervals where I'll, I'll push it and I'll go a lot faster and then I'll pull back. And what's beautiful is your heart rate will come down, but with time, your heart rate comes down faster or you can do a faster speed and actively recover as well. And that's, what's gotten me faster is just active recovery. So learning that speed, that gear, as I call it, is so valuable, not just from an injury standpoint, which nobody cares until they're injured, but performance to be able to master that, to be able to do intervals, to get faster, super game changer cheat code. And I think until you tell people that, then they don't believe it, but it, it truly is learning how to run at those speeds, at that pace, exerting that little amount of effort to allow the heart rate to come back down, uh, people will get faster. Are there any considerations for people who have, I want to say funky feet, like let's say you have, um, you know, uh, mobility issues in your ankles or you have flat feet or you have, you know, weak feet. Obviously those are all things that can and probably should be addressed with a physical therapist like yourself. But have you seen, those issues affect somebody's ability to foot strike in one way versus the other? Good question. It affects the foot strike less. It affects the propulsion more. So the leaving the ground, if I'm trying to teach somebody to have push the ground backwards, that's where ankle range of motion is a lot more important. If they don't have the ability to keep the foot down longer to push down, push back, then they'll compensate somewhere up in the, in the system, usually at the hip. But usually with the landing piece, there's no... It's kind of, if you think about it, of the three planes of motion of sagittal plane is that kind of forward and back. Transverse is that twisting or turning. Frontal is that side to side. When it comes to the landing, it's, it's not as much those kind of deformities that are not deformities, those differences in structure. I've got some myself with my hip rotation. Those don't really play out with the initial contact piece. Um, not as important here. And that's where we have to ask, is it a structural issue? Is it their anatomy? Is it their bony alignment? And if we try to change structure, we're not surgeons. That's what surgeons do. We're trying to shove a square peg in a round hole. If it's functional, like something's tight, which it's not as common as we like to think. It's just something's tight or something's weak, which is causing that. A lot of times it's a structural issue of just, we take a hundred people in a room. If we were to look at the angle of their femur, as the femur goes into their pelvis, everybody's got a different amount of rotation. If I look straight down at toe out, like if I put my fingertips on the, 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 the malleoli or the circle part of the ankle on the inside and outside, most people it's cockeyed to the side. It's not straight ahead. So everybody just has different amounts of rotation in their osteotomy or their body. And that's where trying to fix those. If it's a structural issue, sometimes the only thing I did to get people better was gave them permission to not try to point their toes straight ahead while they run because they had retroverted hips because of their ankle mobility. They were trying because they heard something, something out there. Actually. Yeah. Let me ask you about that specifically. So am I hearing that right? So I, Everybody, like you said, we're all a little bit different. Should somebody who is running and is kind of has a bit of that duck foot 
going on, toes are going out to the side. Is that something that should be addressed or there's some people that's just that's For the way most they people, run. that's the way they run. It's, it's kind of think too of like a road can go straight, but it's not going straight north. So you might have a road that's straight all the way, but it's going northeast. Same with our shoulders and our hips. Most of the time, it's not a straight forward and back. There's a bit of a path to it based off of our anatomy of our structure. But there's a test that we do. I actually have a post. I haven't posted that in a while where there's a test we have called the rider test or the Craig's test, where as a physical therapist, we'll put our hand on the outside of your hip and we'll kind of feel as we rotate your hip, where does it feel like the peak, the apex of your bone is in my hand? It's not super accurate, but gives a good idea. Once I feel like that's in my hand and that's at the pointiest part, then I look at the angle of your of your femur. How much rotation do you have? Most people have some antiversion, which is internal rotation, meaning it's it's really abnormal to have your toes straight ahead with the hip. And it's usually coming from your hips. Um, but there's a test where you can do on your own where you kind of like rotate, feel, where does it feel like it's pointed out? Look down, where's the angle? A lot of times I have people too just look straight ahead, don't think, just march, march and stop. And then look down. What's the angle of your feet? And me, I, I have my right side is more externally rotated or more duck on my right than my left because it's a structural issue. 12 years ago when I was first getting into it, I tried to correct it. Hip pain, knee pain, because it's my anatomy. That's my structure. So for most people, if you look at them squat with their toes straight ahead or run with their toes straight ahead, if they're trying to do that, for almost everybody that can cause some problems as far as a congruency or a structure issue. I know it's tricky for runners to tease out with the injury thing. Hopefully injuries are minimized, but is this a, a, an injury of I did too much too soon? Or is this an injury of I'm doing something, I'm moving in a way that isn't serving me well? Which do you typically see? For most people, it's it's just the too much too soon. Because the thing is, it's crazy. You can adapt to about anything but most people just don't have the time or the patience or the knowledge to be able to do it slowly and systematically over time to be able to adapt to it. Um, but for most people, it's just too much too soon is the, is the most common. And that's where I, I think we could do both sides. We can teach the way people train, the way people load their tissues in a safer way, and also teach them to move in such a way that's also less stress, less force, kind of staying under this injury kind of threshold and allowing the body to recover, adapt, recover, adapt, evolve. But it needs that stress, that stimulus, and it needs that recovery to be able to. And that's where we get into trouble is just people just doing too much too soon, just too much stress. They don't have any impact at all throughout the day. They have a sedentary job and then their body goes from nothing to um, to a lot. I, I use the analogy, a lot of the sun. Like if I wasn't in the sun for 10 months, if I go out in the sun for an hour, I'm probably going to get burned. I'm not used to the sun. I haven't been out for a while. If someone goes from not running at all to suddenly starting to get some impact too much sun too quickly is a burn to the skin. Too much force too soon for running is like a bruise or an injury. We like to call it just of the connective tissue of the body. So for most people, they wouldn't know, okay, just today, I'm just going to go out in the sun for two minutes. That's it. Just go out, got it, back in. All right, recover, adapt. Next day, go 
three minutes. Most people just go out, they do the hour, two hours, they get burned. Same with running. They just too much too soon. And to them, they think six minutes, that can't be that much. Well, your body's telling you it is, it's too, it's too much. If people have pain, like lingering, or if they feel like things like there's a difference between pain and discomfort. If I use the same scale, zero to 10, I call things that are five and above pain, four and below discomfort. Everybody's is different as far as what they say is a four. But for most people, no matter who you are, if it's a five, it's probably too much. Like if it's five, it might be pain or if it's lingering afterwards or lasting for a while or it's not going away as you go. Like if you're worse, that much worse when you end versus we started over after like 20, 30 minutes and things are still, you know, once you catch your breath, things still hurt. It's probably too much. It's probably too much too soon. So that's where the data can help to be systematic and see like, what's my VO2 max or what's my, uh, like Garmin's got some, like number and they try to tell you, I know whoop has stuff. Like there's so many different things out there. I can't speak to their accuracy, but I think they're relatively, if you stay consistently with the same one and ultimately teaching you the trends of like, all right, how do I feel? How's my spirit today? Do I feel worse than I did yesterday? Do I feel better? Do I feel the same of like, when do we progress? When should we not progress? And should we maintain? Lastly, I wanted to ask you, um, about surface, about terrain and, uh, this, just the, the concept of running on softer surfaces versus running on harder surfaces and how that relates to foot strike or leg stiffness. Cause there is, a um, a belief that running on softer surfaces is better for your joints, that running on harder surfaces is worse somehow for your joints. And there also seems to be something tied up usually about foot strike and all of that. So um, what is your take on that? So as far as foot strike, where it can come in is we remember that the foot strike is also like when I'm taking the force, when I'm taking that kind of breaking, when I, if I punch a wall with a hundred pounds of stress, it's coming right back at me. The more firm, the harder the surface, the more stress is coming back. And so more stress, more force for a lot of people can be injury or too much too soon. But we kind of, I think separating out, is it level? Is it flat versus the density of it? And so like trails, they're usually less dense and not flat. And so if that's the case, if it's not flat, if you're dealing with rocks or roots, I don't want to lean quite as much. I don't want to open up, so to speak. I may be a little more cautious because it's more, uh, what is more important is me not falling flat on my face. So people tend to lean a little bit less on trails. They tend to land a little bit closer, maybe more midfoot because they're not landing out in front or they're not leading because they're being more conservative. So on trails, a lot of times, and especially sometimes trails, you are jumping from like higher to a lower area, land on your forefoot but you don't think that it just happens naturally. That's the best part. You don't have to think about it. If we're thinking about it, something's going to go wrong. Just what naturally happens, your body is trying to look out for you. So trails, it's not abnormal to see some midfoot, forefoot going uphill, downhill, especially uphill. It's okay to land midfoot, forefoot. A lot of times we're climbing. We need to use our quads and calves because we're going up higher. It's just not on a flat surface. If I'm going downhill, that's where heel is most common to kind of break, to kind of control. But as far as like the density, just like the shoes, we talked about a minimalist shoe, you're going to feel more of it. So a ground that's firmer or softer, you're either going to feel more or less of it. So a firm like cement, you just get that feedback more of how it feels. And maybe you change the way that you move because you don't want more stress versus on a softer surface. 
um, it tends to be a little bit more forgiving and not just like, I'd rather punch a soft punching bag for an hour than punch a wall or a hard punching bag for an hour. So the density does make a difference, but that's more for like the cushioning of the shoe versus the striking it quite as much. Um, and a lot of it's also speed dependent. I'm trying to get people to exert less stress through the ground at slower speeds. Like if you're going to be going faster then yes, you want to increase your, your three F's, your force, your further pushing the ground further and your frequency or your step rate. But, um, otherwise it really shouldn't be, it's less about the density and more about the flatness of the surface from a safety standpoint. And that does, that makes total sense. Yeah. And I, I really think what's cool about you, what you said, you know, example about trail running is that, you know, a lot of this is completely, your body just does it with the feedback that it receives. You don't, it's not a conscious decision. Right. It's an unconscious decision that your body has made based on all of the feedback that it's receiving from all its different areas. And I think it's also the, one of the things that is really tricky about foot strike. And if people have tried to change their foot strike for whatever reason, how hard that is because so much of the running that we do is not a conscious movement. Like you said at the beginning of our conversation, like, yeah, you might be able to kind of pay attention to one thing, but are you going to, are you going to spend 45 minutes thinking midfoot, 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 midfoot? Like that's not realistic. Yeah. And as soon as you stop thinking about it, you're probably going to revert back to what you were doing before. And that's really where I, people I think struggle when it comes to, I'm going to say changing, but um, refining their mechanics. Yeah. And that's what's cool about the body. The body is, it's trying to help. It tries, I think we differentiate or we get confused. The body's trying to take the path of least resistance. Like example, if I drop something, if I'm not thinking, if I'm just automated, my body doesn't want to do a lot of work. It thinks, how can I lower my body? I've got options. I can use my legs, which are big muscles, a lot of energy to lower and then lift. Or I could just use gravity and use my spine to lower and lift. It doesn't think big picture. It doesn't optimize for long term. It does the moment. It's trying to conserve back to our prehistoric days of conserve. The cool thing about this is once you learn to push back, once you learn to glide, once you learn how to run with less effort, there's no going back. When I do these videos trying to show these mechanics, it's hard for me. It hurts my shins sometimes. It's like, man, I can't believe I ever used to run this. So it's just taking that little bit of time to learn how to be a little bit more efficient, how to use your body, be more, um, you know, lower interest rates, higher in the principal. There's no going back. And ideally, I don't think about mechanics. I haven't in a long time. And my goal and my job is how quickly can I get you to learn this that you don't have to think about it. When you were first learning to drive, you thought about all sorts of stuff. Now we don't think about anything. So the goal is just like that. The goal of learning how to run is not to always have to think about something or some cue. If so, you need that feedback or that teaching to know Got it. You don't need to think about it. Same with driving, same with running, all this stuff. So, so yes, I think it's really, if we're thinking about the foot strike, we're missing the boat. We could be thinking about something so much more uh, valuable and actionable of what's most important. And then let your body is for some parts of it, let your body land. It's not going to want to take more stress. How can you control that? Where's my center of mass? And that's where the three skills, arm swing, leaning and gliding or leaving the ground moving horizontal. If you just spend the time to learn those three, you don't ever have to think about your mechanics again. You can just focus on your, your training, your running, your intervals, your all that stuff. But I, everyone should at least spend some time on the mechanics and they're always going to be amazed at how much it helps and they never realized that it could. 
So if you had to sum up our whole conversation, if somebody's made it this far and would like some, uh, some thoughts for food for thought, um, some top line notes here, what would be those wrap up points? I would say go to a track, go to somewhere there is a long stretch, something you can see off in the distance. And I first want you to start, look straight ahead eye level, look at something that's not moving. First, kind of lean forward. Don't move anything, but just transfer your weight to your balls or your feet. How does that feel? You feel your calves working? Where is your weight? Okay, I want you to keep your weight there. Now move forward towards that image. Try to minimize it going up and down. Try to keep your head still. Can you keep that forward momentum? First, just think about the leaning. Don't even worry about that first. See what happens. And watch what naturally happens. Don't think about the landing. It's just naturally going to happen. You're going to land on the heel. So my thing is, if you are going to think about something, first think about the leaning. It's more order of operations. I teach leaning before uh, not jumping. So learning that, what does it feel like to have your weight forward? Once you master that, learn how to leave horizontal. We talked earlier, tennis ball necklace, treadmill, multiple stuff. Never think about the landing, ever. There's no point to it. It's going to happen naturally. You just think about the gliding. You don't have to think about it. So if you're thinking about the landing, here's the best news. And this is where most people either get pissed at this or they love it. Oh, good. I don't have to worry about it. Think about foot strike. But some people just get again, like we talked about, all fired up about it. But don't think about the landing. Think about leaning Think about pushing the ground back. So we just spent an hour talking about something that we are essentially telling people that if they're doing other things correctly, they never actually have to yes. think about this. <laughs> and that's the beauty is learning. Oh, great. I don't have to think about it. But until you know that, it's always going to be on your mind, knowing what to focus on versus what not to focus on. So yes, that's 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 kind of the nature of a lot of this that we do, especially with the cadence and the deep dives. Is But the more you know, you understand, it just makes it so much more clear. And ultimately, we're just trying to have people do less work to get the maximum benefit because we're just like them. We're not trying to do more work than we need to. And also hopefully combat some misinformation that when somebody is confronted by somebody who says heel striking is terrible, yeah. you need to be like, well, actually, you know, I don't think that's necessarily true. I'm going to keep doing what's best for me because I know these yes. things. Amen. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. I know that you have a ton of resources on your YouTube channel. If people are looking for visual representations of all the things that we've talked about and more, hankling, base gliding, obviously the tennis ball necklace. That's so cool about the research. Yeah. Like, tell me more about that. So I've been talking about it with my old professor for a long time. And we finally got a way of like, all right, how can we actually do this? And, and what's cool is the setup's going to be taking runners and just having them run and capture a force plate with the ground and cameras and seeing how they do and then put the tennis ball necklace on them and do just like I do out in clinic or in the real world. The only thing we tell them is I want you to move forward in such a way that keeps the ball as quiet and as still as possible and see what changes and then take it off and see what changed back or versus what didn't. So that's kind of, we're going to do it both on a treadmill versus on the overground. I said, we have to do overground, not just treadmill, but it's what's so cool is to see people figure it out, like subconsciously figuring things out instead of telling them about their ankle, their shoulder, just one cue, essentially their center of mass, that ball is like external representation of their center of mass. If we just teach to that, 
all these other things kind of take care of themselves instead of shoulder, knee, hip. So yeah, it'll be cool. It'll probably take a couple of years because when we're in PT school, it's all three years that you do the research and, and capture the data. So it probably won't be for a couple of years, but ideally the goal is to be presenting and speaking on it, different conferences and all that. And I think it will offer something very different, not what's out there as far as needing million dollar equipment and labs. My goal is to show in those million dollar labs, what can this simple tennis ball, shoelace and metal washers or pennies, what's a way that you can get that same effect on your own to learn just to make it more accessible to to everybody so stay tuned tbn tennis ball necklace that's so cool and i know that you know, that is a huge it, it, say barrier to access for a lot of people in getting their form analyzed is if you go to a, a fancy clinic that has all of the electrodes and all the modeling and it's hundreds of dollars you know or you're doing all these things where you might not need all that. Yeah. Sorry, and, all of you gadget right? people out I there. <laughs> but if we think of humanity, what's best for big picture for everybody, that's how we should be thinking. You know, we should be thinking, how can I get to the masses? How can I make this scalable? How can I make this as cheap and as easy as possible? But uh, but yeah, that should be our goal because we're all just trying to have some form of movement. As you know, as everyone's listening knows, the running can be that for so many people. And again, that's what keeps me coming back is just there's people out there that continues to get injured. They're struggling and they just either are, don't know how to do it a little bit better or they haven't even discovered running yet. And then they get on this journey and we all know what that's like. So, so yes, the goal is to make it scalable to the masses, give you feedback in real time, not video you two weeks later. Notice how you did that. Oh, well, how am I going to fix that in real time? That's where we get. And most of the time we don't have that real time feedback with all the expensive software. It's afterwards where we're watching a video or looking at data, just like your smartwatch or looking at it, looking at the scale, how much do I weigh? That's not really where we make the changes, just looking at the scale. So real time feedback, then take it away so you don't need it. Mimic the mechanics. Let's all get on it. Let's, all, let's help the world run smarter, safer, and faster. Yes, I love it. And Matt, tell us about the resources and programs that you have because your content is fabulous. Thank you. Yes, I still do the Instagram. That's still kind of like if you're looking for 90 seconds or less or more picture infographs, then Instagram learn dot two dot run. Um, the YouTube learn dot to learn to run 101 or just learn to run. If you just type in that in YouTube, that'll come with my videos. And I'm trying to do like a 60 minute version of something, a 30 minute version, and then a 90 second, just for those of you that don't want that much information, I understand, but just presenting it in different ways. And that's all I ask myself, like, how do people learn? How can I present this in a different way that maybe somebody will get it and maybe somebody else won't, but having multiple resources out there. Uh, so as far as the free content, that's that I've also got uh, learned, uh, L2R, learn to run, TBN, tennisballnecklace.com, which is I teach you how to make a tennis ball necklace and then how to quickly kind of like use it for free. And then online, I have training plans. I have mechanics education, teaching you how to glide, teaching you how to base glide. How can you move forward? Teaching the skill of leaning, teaching you how to push with a tush, push the ground back. And it feels like I'm there in real time. So mechanics, training, and or free resources, uh, learn to run. Awesome. And all of those will be linked in the show notes. You can find Matt and his content, follow him, learn more. And if you haven't listened to the other two episodes, there's one from the end of season one. There's one from the beginning of season season two. Did we not do one last year? We did year? episode one of season. Are you on four now? I'm in yeah, four. We did three, episode one. Three. So we skipped season yep. two. Ah, bummer. Yep. All right. It's all good. <laughs> Always a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thanks for having me. I look forward to it next time. 
I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find and follow me on Instagram at Running Explained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.